0: You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby, and this is Eastern Promise, the podcast that explores the full potential of the East of England, a broad, powerful knowledge economy with a quality of life that's second to none. It might be a small world after all, but global competition for inward investment is huge, and our region must be in it to win it. My guest this week is Harriet Fear, MBE, Chief Executive of Cambridge And, which offers potential investors both a shop window and a red carpet service to the city. Harriet will talk us through both her hugely impressive career and the origins of Cambridge And. And finally... Ah oui, c'est Where do you go in our region to feel the love? Let's find out in this week's Crowd Sorcery. And now, let's find out what's occurring in this week's News Roundup. Are you feeling hungry? No? Don't worry, you soon will be. Announcing Nourish, Norfolk and Suffolk's inaugural Food and Drink Innovation Cluster Conference, on Wednesday, the 29th of March, 2023. The UEA's Food Innovation Cluster is a dynamic new project which aims to make a bold difference to Norfolk and Suffolk food and drink producers by supporting and encouraging them with the people, services, and funding that will enable them to flourish. Hosted by the University of East Anglia's Food Innovation Cluster, this scrumptious one-day event is taking place at the Barnum Broom Luxury Resort and is a great opportunity for SMEs and startups to celebrate the success of food and drink businesses in the region. More than that, they can be part of a collaborative and innovative think-tank event and shape the future of food and drink in the east of England. Though primarily aimed at local food organisations and individuals engaged with the food supply chain, the event is open to all, either attending in person or online. The conference will end with a drinks reception, which everyone is welcome to attend. Register for your place for free at www.foodinnovationbroadland.com forward slash events forward slash, food, dash, and, dash, drink, dash, innovation, dash, conference. And bon appetit! As many listeners will know, both Norfolk County Council and Suffolk County Council have agreed, in principle, county deals with the government. These deals will devolve funding and powers to each of these counties, providing an exciting opportunity to unlock funding and for decisions currently made in Whitehall to be made in our region, in Suffolk and Norfolk, respectively. You can find the text of these provisional deals on the government website, gov.uk. Simply Google Norfolk County Deal or Suffolk County Deal. Under the deal, both councils will each have a leader that is directly elected by the public. One for Norfolk, one for Suffolk. Whilst Suffolk Steel will go to consultation in the summer, Norfolk Steel is open for public consultation now, and this consultation will run until the 20th of March 2023. This could be just the start of further powers being devolved to Norfolk and Suffolk, which could potentially include greater responsibility over the NHS and social care, and controls over the number of holiday homes in coastal areas. Most importantly of all, please make sure your voice is heard on this issue. Go to norfolk.citizenspace.com forward slash consultation forward slash Norfolk County Deal and fill out the survey. For Suffolk businesses and residents, please keep an eye open and respond to your consultation once it opens later in the year. Whilst we're on the subject of having your voice heard in Norfolk and Suffolk, the norfolk and the suffolk chambers of commerce are working jointly with the department for education to ensure that businesses and employers have their voices heard on the skills agenda following the launch of the norfolk and suffolk local skills improvement plan lsip the two chambers definitely don't want the joint local skills improvement plan to duplicate existing initiatives far from it The Norfolk and Suffolk LSIP aims to align with other skills projects and help break them free from silos, enhance what is working well and fill any gaps that remain. The two chambers are getting the message out across Norfolk and Suffolk with a roadshow of events. For full details, go to norfolkchamber.co.uk or suffolkchamber.co.uk and follow the links to the LSIP, the Local Skills Improvement Plan. And finally, Eastern Promise congratulates Thetford advanced engineering firm Warren on its 33 years in business, which it has marked with a brilliant fresh new brand and a spiffy looking website to boot. Managing Director Will Bridgman says After 33 years growing the business, we wanted our corporate identity to convey Warren's evolution into a modern, full service, advanced manufacturing partner with a focus on engineered innovation. Warren's purpose is to help our clients succeed by bringing their projects, such as high-value architectural engineering and electromechanical machines, to market with speed and precision. Congratulations to Will, to founder Richard Bridgman, and all at Warren. For more information, visit the aforementioned spiffy website at warrenservices.co.uk. And that's this week's News Roundup, rounded up. Send your stories to newsdesk at easternpromise.site Foreign Direct Investment, or FDI, is an integral part of an open and effective international economic system. So says the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. To take just one example, GV, the investment arm of Alphabet, Google's parent company, provides venture capital funding to UK businesses in the life sciences, enterprise tech, consumer and frontier tech sectors. A list like that should make it abundantly clear that the East of England needs to have skin in the FDI game. We don't just need the local and national policies conducive to securing investment. We also need a compelling offer, a shop window for our region, whether as a whole or in part, and the expertise to tie everything together in a superbly networked red carpet service. Thankfully for our region in general, and Cambridge in particular, we have that capability and expertise in the person of Harriet Fear MBE. Chief Executive of Cambridge And, the gateway to the city's peerless ecosystem. I caught up with Harriet on a bright and sunny February morning at the offices of Deloitte in Cambridge. Harriet Fear, welcome to Eastern Promise. Uh, Never, I think, have I read a bio, not even of uh, Members of Parliament, and been... Intimidated to the wrong word, but full of kind of respect and um, admiration and a bit like, I better get this right, because <laughs> dealing with someone who knows a business, that's for sure.
1: Oh, bless um, you, that's
0: very sweet. I- I'm reliably informed, as as people on LinkedIn may know, and this is the first time anyone I've interviewed has been described in advance by a third party as a badass. <laughs> how did that how do you react to that? <laughs>
2: So, so I've, to my knowledge, I've never been described as a badass before. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm guessing and hoping it comes from a really great place. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that was quite a surprise to me too. And, and obviously just this week. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't look up what the definition of a, of a badass is, but I like to think my definition in my own lunchtime is that it's somebody who um, is, is driven and focused uh, and wants to make a difference.
0: I, uh, I get that. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I read... Um, The Cambridge went through the Cambridge and website and it was there that I thought, you know what? I think I'm dealing with kindred spirits with Cambridge and. And it was it was the vision and the energy and the positivity that really surged uh, from from that. But we'll we'll, we'll come on to that. Um, And again, never have I read a CV for someone I'm interviewing with the words deputy ambassador twice in it. Tell us more.
2: (laughs) I was very fortunate. So I joined the Foreign Office um, straight from school, pretty much, which I don't even know if you can do that these days. This was back in the late 80s. So it's a long time back and uh, progressed quickly. I came into operational level. I didn't go to university, obviously, as I mentioned, I just came straight after school and was really fortunate that uh, passed all sorts of promotional competitions internally and had all sorts of amazing opportunities from from a pretty young age. So I did something called floating about six or seven people a year chosen at sort of junior to middle management level in the Foreign Office to, to undertake all sorts of different roles. And they're trained for an intense six month period to basically go and help and troubleshoot wherever there's some sort of crisis in the world. I don't know if this still happens, but it certainly did for the whole time I was 20 years in the Foreign Office. And it's brilliant for young people that, you know, don't necessarily come in with huge academic prowess, but are really keen to be operational and, and make that difference quickly. And there are a number of us that were, were um, doing this floating role. And I'm still in touch with, with several of them. Really? Interestingly, two of whom are in, in Inward Investments. So there's perhaps <laughs> there's a have yes. the Foreign Office and, the, and our Inward Investment Specialists. Uh, so it's it was really exciting. But I got, that's why I got to spend uh, time in 17 different countries in my in my 20-year career. Because somebody once said to me, I know the Foreign Office. And and actually, if you did 17 countries in 20 years, is that because you were dreadful and kept on being moved on quickly? <laughs> and I said, no, I it's didn't, just, no, it's just how it, it works. It's, it's because I was doing three-month stints somewhere, yeah. really difficult, then moved on to somewhere else, really difficult to do something else. So um, basically, trained to, to just slot in into some difficult situation, hence the Deputy Ambassador to ICE. It didn't really matter what grade you were, as long as you were able to do the job. So the Deputy Ambassadorships were in Actually, I did three. Um, one was in Kinshasa when it was Zaire. I know, you Zaire mentioned that,
0: yeah. Well, when
2: it was Zaire. So that was, that was quite an interesting, well, a very interesting one. But the other two were in much more glamorous places. The other two were in um, Estonia and in the Seychelles. But I have to say, Zaire oh, yes, was terrible, the most interesting. It? Yes,
0: <laughs> I, bet, I bet it was, although, you know, it's tough at the top, as I say. Um Yeah, Because I, 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 slightly digressing, but I, I, I did the fast stream. I went for the ice right. stream and managed to wang my way to the board. God knows how. And uh, I was got put in a in a team with a party with the sort of Oxford and Cambridge graduates, and then me, graduate of um, Nottingham Trent University, feeling completely out of place and not knowing at the time that I was I was uh, living with the Spurges and ADHD, which got I've only sort of been diagnosed in the past couple of years. Right. Um, Completely falling flat on my face. Oh no! But that was that was fine because at that point I was already working in Parliament, so um, I got I got uh, all the experience that I needed. I needed that way. But we're not here to talk about me.
2: I imagine that was quite an intense period, though.
0: <laughs> yes, yes it was. Yes it was. It had its moments. Uh, but life sciences, um, something that actually I was only just reading before I came here, the, the Chancellor's speech at Bloomberg, talking about life sciences, talking about our mutual friend George Freeman. In glowing terms, and um, but you you had a role with the what used to be UKTR UK Trading Investment Life Science representing the life science sector. What an incredibly rich field! I will reach the question in a minute, but tell us uh, about that and the kind of experience you had, and was that your induction to, introduction to Cambridge, or have you sort of always been from Cambridge?
2: No, that was my introduction to Cambridge, actually, Mike. So so with the Foreign Office, with the operational stream, you're encouraged and, and actively it turns out that you, you you are a generalist rather than a specialist. Mm. The Foreign Office will bring in, as you know, their their political brilliant minds and their uh, economists and legal teams and so on and so forth. But at the operational end, you can, you, can, you know, be a, a so-called expert in something for three yeah. years and then move on to something else. Mm. And so I just finished back at, uh, it was about 2003. I just finished as the head of press in uh, Dublin which was a really interesting and and, and tricky time uh, defending the Iraq war amongst other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came back to the UK and was due to do a a home tour. So with the Foreign Office, you do generally two overseas tours, as they call it, postings uh, for about six or seven years, and then come back to the UK uh, to be reminded of what being a a normal person's like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I was due to come back to, to London and to Whitehall. And I got a phone call from from an ex-boss of mine to say, uh, Gordon Brown, who was then the PM, this was in 2003, has decided that he thinks biotech might be quite important to the future of the UK economy. And uh, UK Trade and Investment was looking to create a, a national life sciences or a national biotech trade team. And was I interested? Because my ex-boss knew that I lived near Cambridge. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd like to say there were some detailed criteria for being approached. And I just come out of um, a few years later I'd done commercial work in um, the Czech Republic, and I credibility is really important to me. And, and people who know me will know that I'm, I, you know, I broadly know what I'm good at. You no, know, after a number of years, you, you do know what you're good at. But I also am very honest about what I'm, what I don't know. And so what I said to this former boss of mine was, I don't know that much about biotechnology, and companies are going to sniff me out in a heartbeat if I try and be something I'm not. So I I turned the job down, which not many people know. So I said, Ah. it sounds very exciting, but I don't think I'm the right person to come in. And so I was thought I'd go off back to, to London and do, you know, some, some, some job in, in Whitehall in Westminster. And I had a load of leave that I was taking because I'd amassed a load having not taken any for a very long time, which is very bad, I know. But anyway, um, about a month later, he rang me back and he said, great news, Harriet, we've got a biochemist to run the National Life Sciences team. Would you come in and be the deputy? So I thought, well, that sounds really exciting because I know I can put teams together and I know I can bring some heart and soul to, to, to the endeavor. And I love stakeholder relations. So that's what happened. Yeah. And then because back then, I don't know if you remember, Mike, um, England, not necessarily the UK, was carved into nine separate sort of economic geographies. So you had the east of England. And all of them were shouting about how brilliant they were at biotech. Now, that's absolutely true, because there's centres of excellence throughout England and the UK, as we well know in life sciences and healthcare. Um, But Cambridge won. The pitch yes. to house the national life sciences team, and so uh, I live in Suffolk and have done for for a long time. And so uh, my first introduction to Cambridge was 2003, deputy in the life sciences team, and then the biochemist left after about a year, a year and a half, having set the strategy. And uh, the Foreign Office, UK Trade and Investment, was thinking, okay, who do we replace them with? And lots of stakeholders said to me, you know, go for the job. You know, you you know us inside out now. You know the national picture. You've got your specialists around you. This will be fantastic for continuity. And uh, six years later, I was still there and we won lots of nice awards and and did things in a bit of an unconventional way. (laughs) So that was my introduction to Cambridge and to life sciences. Oh, wow.
0: I mean, and then you, you went on from that to One Nucleus. And um, scientists on the Norwich Research Park, specifically John Innes Centre, have spoken to me in really glowing terms about it and said, Oh, you, you heard of one? You, heard, you must have heard of one. You mm-hmm.
2: Good. <laughs>
0: and, uh, and I know how important this network is to them. Uh, and you grew the body into the largest life science and healthcare membership body in Europe. How did you do that? And what, what kind of drove you forward doing that?
2: So, yeah, so I'd been running the the National Life Sciences team for quite a long time. And the guy that had run the Eastern Region Biotech Initiative, as One Nucleus was called before it became One Nucleus, uh, a chap called Jeff Solomon, was on uh, one of my advisory boards in national government. So I made a hint just now about how we did things a bit unconventionally. One of the things that I wanted to do with, with, you know, taxpayers' money and supporting small and medium-sized companies to trade internationally in in life sciences and healthcare was I wanted to make sure that we had businesses' paw prints all over our strategy rather than it being perceived as purely civil servants, you know, in in potentially ivory towers. And so I created two advisory boards, one for biotech and one for healthcare. And Jeff Solomon, who was the chief exec of Erby, at the time, the Cambridge-based membership organisation for biotech was was one of my was on, was one of the advisors on my uh, national industry board. So he tipped me off that he was moving on, and I just thought, how exciting would that be to to come in and and lead and be CEO and, and leave the Foreign Office because I'd done all the things I wanted to do in the Foreign Office. I'd re- really really people focused, and I'd worked in personnel, and I'd worked in crisis situations, and I'd done you know the joy of positivity relating to commercial work and I never wanted to do political yeah. activity and I never yeah. wanted to crunch numbers so I thought probably the right time 20 years is is a good amount yeah. of time so I applied for the role at IRB uh, not thinking for a second that I would uh, that I would stand any level of a chance even though you know I had certain I guess certain levels of experience in terms of understanding the national uh, government machine pretty well and, and looking internationally with my foreign office career. But I got the job, which was amazing. Um, and I was reflecting back the other day that Gordon Baxter, who was the CEO of Biowisdom at the time and the chair of Irby, he wrote to me not that long ago and said, uh, you're one of my best decisions. And I thought that was such a lovely thing oh, to say. Nice. <laughs> I, thought nice. that was, I thought it was such a lovely thing to say, because to be honest, at the time, this was 2009 when I came in, back end of the 2007 recession, you know, running any sort of membership organization, there were there were things uh, going on internally which were not entirely straightforward. You know, the, a, a, an organization that runs on a membership basis, it's hard to continue to show the value that you're bringing to every, yeah. each and every member and to expect them to, you know, to take rent out of their bottom line. And so, you know, I came in at what was a, a a tricky time for, for any membership organization so it was a bit of a baptism of fire never have run a company before and being <laughs> yeah. perceived by some as a you know as a perhaps a not, not me particularly but you know the brand of a civil servant you know is this is this going to work but fortunately I had the full support of the board and the members this the companies that I met to test my strategy in the early days was was all ridiculously positive so I had Two very clear agendas when I started and two very clear messages from from life science and healthcare companies one was deduplicate the work of membership organizations in the UK there are a lot of you yes what's the difference between the Oxford one the Cambridge one the London one the one in the north we want to see differentiation and understand where our money's going absolutely right and the other was get us a relationship with mass buyer in the US because it's the largest membership organization in the world and how about soft landing for each other's members and so those were the two absolute areas of razor sharp focus that i concentrated on and uh, the mass bio relationship um i signed a deal with the oxford equivalent and with the london equivalent a sort of golden triangle package mm. with governor devil patrick who'd set up the mass life sciences center yeah so we signed a, an mou between oxford cambridge and um and London, uh, which was a soft landing for, for, for all of the, our three organisations members with MassBio and vice versa, which is amazing. And I'm still in touch with Deval and I'm still in touch with Susan Winter banister who ran the Mass Life Sciences Centre. Really, really uh, good friend, Susan. So that was great. But in terms of the deduplication of effort, uh, Tony Jones, who ran the London Biotech Network, and I talked really early on about merging the two. Yeah. And that spoke to the point from our collective membership. About deduplicating effort and having this sharp focus, and so not long after I started in 2009, Tony and I, London Biting Network was an initiative of London First, and uh, Tony was running it and had championed it from the outset, and he had a large member base. Uh, we had a large member base, and we merged, and it was a, such a brilliant opportunity because Tony and I had known each other for years in my from my government role. Yeah, I. Respected him hugely for his technical and specialist knowledge, which I didn't have and never pretended to have, and uh, and I love doing the stakeholder piece and the you know sort of the the front of house and the managing of the team. So we were I like to think we were a really good combination. So the following year, 2010, we had the Cambridge conference and launched as One Nucleus. And I remember a number of people saying, Who's, what's, what's this new pharma company, One Nucleus? They must have loads of money because the branding's <laughs> everywhere. And, uh, and that's when I explained what we were. But it was a brilliant opportunity, Mike, for, for myself and Tony to sit down and look at all the things that were working brilliantly in both separate organizations. And to be honest, all the things that, you know, were a bit more wobbly and stop those things and enhance the things that were going really well. And I left in twenty uh, when was it two thousand and seventeen uh, because we just won an award for being the best in the world, and I'd done eight and a half years, and I thought now's the time to go. And yeah. and, and brilliantly and happily, uh, the board chose Tony to, yes, to take over. Yes, indeed. And and the rest is history.
0: Indeed.
2: <laughs> so that's <Wow>. the story. <laughs>
0: okay, um, it's those personal connections are really really important, and I guess that's a universal thing. Not not. A specifically Cambridge thing, not specifically an Eastern England thing. But I always think it's quite interesting where people, where people kind of focus either on the region or on the Westminster end of things. Right. In accessing the MPs. There's a blot where are they at their most concentrated? Well, it's obviously it's in Westminster. And I've spoken to Daniel Zeitner and I've spoken to George, and I'm sure I'll interview others. I've asked, I've spoken to Chloe Smith about um, a chat. And uh, But it, it strikes me as quite interesting that the, 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 there are those two ways to go about it, those two networks to focus on t- to to get places. And I think, for, for my money, I think being here in the region, talking to people like you, coming to Cambridge, which is a tremendously aspirational place to be, Cambridge is a safe place to do risky things.
2: <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> what
0: does that mean to you?
2: <laughs> so I love that mantra. And uh, it's interesting because you know I've been in Cambridge 20 years this year in life sciences and healthcare, and obviously now with a broader focus on innovation and showcasing that to the world in a joined up way for the ecosystem. But uh, I mentioned earlier that advisory group I had in national government in biotech so jeff solomon was one of them but one of the others was andy richards mm-hmm. and the safe place to do risky things many people claim that they said it <laughs> but i know who said it <laughs> yes. and it was it was andy and i think it resonates with lots of people it resonates with many of the, well, it resonates with all the large companies that i talked to about investing in cambridge uh, because for me what it's all about is it can tick no, nothing is ever guaranteed in life but if you're a ceo or a strategic advisor for a a company that's seeking to spend time, money and energy in a new location, you want your shoulders to come down on all the key issues and to not be feeling constantly pressurised. And so if I think about the key priorities, I was talking with a a potential investor just this morning, there are two very clear top priorities all the time, long-term talent pipeline guaranteed, as much as it ever can be and the highest quality space. And what Cambridge brings of both those things in, in equal measure. And the way that Cambridge And describes the ecosystem, and again, I'm claiming no credit for this. I'm very good at saying what's my idea. and very good at saying what's other people's ideas. But a safe place to do risky things, the way that we describe the ecosystem, and it's Professor Andy Neely from the university, this is his definition of it, which people really like, is... This, the foundation, the really solid world-class science foundation as the bedrock of this cluster, whether it's tech, engineering, or life sciences and healthcare. And then up from that, three pillars of equal importance. So talent and skills, space and infrastructure and money, and really importantly, actually, professional services. We're sitting today in Deloitte's offices. Think often... People forget to call out the importance of our brilliant professional services, technical experts to support uh, companies in the UK and internationally. Um, And then across the top of that diagram, as I think about it in my head, is something that I think does make Cambridge special. And that's safe, perhaps safer place to do risky things is the people. And I know that you on your (laughs) roadshow meeting (laughs) people will have seen for yourself how how giving people are in the, in, in this particular region um, and want to give back. And so across the top and wrapping around what I've just described are the various networks and individuals who are really supportive to any innovative endeavour that's going to help address global challenges. And so for me, if you put the power of the people and the connectivity between those people together with those three pillars – and then underpinning it all is this incredible science, whether it's genomics or AI or quantum, or whatever it might be. That's really compelling. And that makes it safer, perhaps, than other places. But I'm, I'm not deeply competitive when it comes to the UK. 20 years a diplomat. you know. Yes. I promoted the UK first and foremost for a very long time.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I think that, that, that's concerned me slightly, and I under, underline that word, on my travels... Um, is a kind of and i think this is to the to the detriment of the east and it's I, I i i don't i think this is something we can absolutely address and fix and and get this right um return to my my, my no grown policy is that there might be a, a misreading sort of somewhere along the a14 slash a11 slash the, the the norwich cambridge line between what cambridge is and what Norfolk and Suffolk are. And uh, I think uh, William Rook from downstairs in Carter Jones put this best in that the rest of the region can somehow be seen at the end of the line, whereas Cambridge often seems from the other end as like a walled citadel which is impenetrable to the likes of us. Um, and I think that's profoundly wrong. I think there's a great willingness. And, and, and a lot of people listening to this will say, I've never found that. And I think there is a great willingness for an engagement. But I think there has to be increased muscularity, if you like, increased willingness to engage. And if people have said, oh, you know, people, when they get successful or whatever, or good at their job, they they go to Cambridge. okay, how do we make a virtue of that? So we invite you to reflect on that a bit before we move on to Cambridge and itself.
2: Yes, so I think it's a a very fair point to say that Cambridge can be perceived as impenetrable. And if I'm brutally honest about the reason why Cambridge and exists, it's because... Well, certainly for the time I've been in Cambridge in the last 20 years, for the first 15 of those years, a number of us would sit in dark rooms with cold compresses on our head <laughs> trying to work out how we could showcase to the world in a joined up way what the innovation is here. So when I was at One Nucleus, I would talk you know, animatedly with, with CEOs of Cambridge Network and Cambridge Wireless and Cambridge Ahead and, and, and Cambridge Network and others about how we could handle in a really professional way inward investment how we could present a united front internationally and to do no disservice to any of those membership organizations it never really happened because ultimately we all had our own drivers and none of us were tasked with foreign direct investment particularly Mm -hmm. you know of course if a medtronic or a Pfizer, or whoever or or a, um, a, a huge quantum company was going to come to cambridge the networks would all leap into action but it wasn't any of our roles you know, written down in mandate form to proactively approach companies and, and handhold them into Cambridge. And we many of us have talked long and hard about how the perception was not the reality. The perception is that Cambridge is hard to find and your experience of it depends upon who you know already and which stones to mm-hmm. look under. And so one of the reasons for Cambridge and being created and we're not a membership organisation. We're very intentionally not a membership organisation. And I'll explain why in a sec. But the, the, the turning point came back in 2017. The University of Cambridge had some feedback from several global companies that were seeking to come and uh, have feet in Cambridge. Where's the compelling one story? Where's the shop window so that companies can come to that one space and know they're going to be introduced to all the right people? And so that was the reason that Cambridge And was created by Andy Neely, as I say, at the university, and Mike Anstey from Cambridge Innovation Capital. They both did a huge amount of legwork and stakeholder engagement to, to look at how this could be addressed. And so we create, we, I worked with them and a number of other people um, in the margins for, for a couple of years on brand articulation and working out what this might be and how it would be additive. And we incorporated as a private company just before the pandemic <laughs> in February 2020. But the whole point is that it's, to, it's, very, it's a razor-sharp focus on those sectors I mentioned, but also purely on supporting large companies internationally or also young companies that are scaling quickly in Cambridge's areas of expertise to come and physically set up here. And that's really exciting because I get to see the whites of the eyes of these incredible companies. But I, Harriet Fear sitting in my cottage in Suffolk, can't possibly know the answer to everything. (laughs) But I've got, we're so fortunate with Cambridge and because we're not stepping on anyone's toes, we're being additive. We wrap around what I call A, B and C. And that's stolen as well from Lewis Herbert, (laughs) the former former leader of of, of the council, obviously. Um, Academia, business and the civic community are all behind Cambridge and which is fantastic. And in fact, The three councils, so South Cams, City and County, all want me to actively say that this has full civic support. So so we've brought together A, B and C. But the point is that I can draw on any or all of those to make sure I've got the right proposition, the right data, the right offer, the right programme of visits for a company to come and access Cambridge. And that's it's not just exciting and compelling. It's actually really necessary. Yeah. Because we can't have companies being confused about what Cambridge is, because you know, everyone I meet in Cambridge is looking at addressing and making a difference and an impact on you know these, these challenges that we have around the world, you know, ageing populations, sustainability and so on. People are working on really crucial things and they need to have the best companies have easy access into them to collaborate.
0: So, so talk me through the, the Cambridge AND process. Is it sort of you get an email or a phone call in to say, this company is wanting to expand, merge. Um, uh, you know, there's there's various different types of foreign direct investment, as I've learned. Um, Greenfield, brownfield. Um, what what happens if you like a, a Scandinavian sovereign wealth fund or a US uh, investor looking to looking to uh, you know step into the Cambridge market?
2: Yes, yeah, so we have three ways of uh, our pipeline consists of three different pillars, if you like. So I can explain those all briefly. So the first is we have uh, a set of global companies that we would love to attract to come into Cambridge. To be brutally honest, those 81 companies, and you can tell it's a genuine number because it's 81. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Um,
2: Across those three sectors, they're going to be companies that are on most high-growth cities hit list, if you like, if you're being brutal about it. So whether it's Milan or Boston or Berlin or Cambridge or Edinburgh, wherever it might be. And what I do with those companies, uh, not all of them at the same time, but what I do is I create working groups around them. So X company is on that list. And rather than it necessarily being me that would proactively approach the company and say, have you thought about Cambridge as a potential place to, to come and have an academic or commercial collaboration or have feet on the ground, which is obviously our ultimate metric at Cambridge. And what I do is work out within the ecosystem who already at a very senior strategic level has relations with that company already. So I'll put the data together with various people who will know um, that particular sector well, make sure that the data and the proposition is robust. And then, in the nicest possible way, I will use the most compelling and appropriate person who has the relationship with that company to knock on that door. So it's not always. Sometimes it's me, um, and with my background in life sciences, a number of the life science and healthcare opportunities are obviously me because I've got that that yeah. national and, and global. Reach still, and and really fortunate to have those connections. But for quantum, for example, absolutely not the right person. (laughs) But I put the I can put the stack together. Mm. So that's that's one way. But those are very aspirational, and I think, well, I know that the Cambridge and board and myself, we're very well aware that we're not necessarily going to attract a global company to move their global headquarters to Cambridge. Now, AstraZeneca was a very particular set of circumstances, and I was privileged to be. Involved in some of those behind the door conversations when Pascal first came to talk uh, to and meet with Cambridge people back at the back end of 2012. But if you look at AstraZeneca, and I'm not their spokesperson, but if you look at them and their evolution in Cambridge from Cambridge antibody technology to the merger with uh, with Medimmune, and then obviously AstraZeneca acquiring Medimmune, you can see how Cambridge was a safe place to do risky yeah. things for AZ. And I remember Pascal being blown away by the world class science, but also really importantly, the deeply collaborative spirit that Medimune had. He was really impressed with both those things. And that's no that's no secret. But we recognize that that was a very particular set of circumstances. So that's that's one area. The second area is that I work closely with the mayoral combined authority. So uh, the mayor and the previous mayor have a, a growth service, which is a, 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 an agency called GrowthWorks, which is responsible and, and accountable into the mayor for um, regional across cambridgeshire regional business support and one of those tranches is inward investment across cambridgeshire and so when a big opportunity comes in from central government from the department for international trade into the Merrill combined authority and it's got cambridge written all over it <laughs> um, i will work with the growth works team yeah. to put together the right um, proposition to, to support them with, with that work and then the third area I'm not suggesting the first two areas are not exciting. They're very exciting. But the third area is something that I think, from conversations I've had with other investment agencies across the country and internationally, I'm not suggesting it's unique, but I don't think it's done that often, is that I mentioned before that we incorporated just before lockdown. And our core offer is a VIP red carpet visit service well, you can't have a VIP red carpet visit service when you've got a global pandemic raging. No. So I had to write a digital, well, I needed to write a a Mm -hmm. digital engagement strategy, obviously. And with that digital engagement strategy, it was all about how to make sure that I was getting to the right companies and advising them about Cambridge. But various amazing people in Cambridge who I know really well said to me, Harry, actually what, what Cambridge Island could really usefully do and I'll come back to Andy Richards here because he was involved in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, he's, he, lots of things lead back to Andy. But him and others said to me, what would be really exciting and really interesting would be for Cambridge and to analyse the unicorns of the future around the world in areas where Cambridge is genuinely world class. And of course, in life sciences, I could reel those off in a heartbeat, genomics, yeah. gene and cell therapy, antibody based therapeutics, whatever it might be so actually do some primary and secondary research and look at the globe in genomics as an example and we did do genomics first now I said at the start of this interview I'm not a specialist and this has to be a high quality output so I as you probably imagine got some of the best brains in Cambridge University (laughs) to to work with me on this and there's a master's in um, there's an MPhil in biotechnology and engineering as you probably know at the University of Cambridge and I'd put bids in for projects. And when I ran the National Life Sciences Trade Team into the, this, this programme to seek um, a team to, to, to work on a particular project. And when I ran the National Trade Team for Life Sciences, these people were always absolute rock stars. Just you know, give them 10 minutes of briefing, they'd go away and produce some amazing analysis on the Brazilian market in, in, in medtech or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, you know, March 2020, where do I go for the best possible <laughs> primary and secondary research? Well, where better than, than, than one of the world-class universities? So, so to cut a very long story short, uh, Cambridge and does the, has arranges this really in-depth analysis of areas where we're world-class. So we've a report on genomics. We've recently completed gene and cell therapy and now have another team. It's an annual thing. I now have a, a, team, a team of four amazing students uh, looking at data analytics in healthcare. And the output from these is a long list of 100 companies around the world in each of those areas that, against a, a very clear set of criteria which change depending on the sector, but against a very clear set of criteria, look like they could be of interest to Cambridge and vice versa. And so, I mean, this is an academic piece; it's for their degree, so so it's yeah. it's very deeply mm. analytical. But I'm interested in the output so yes, and of yeah, where I can get to with it. So. So so the theory is great, but what does it look like? So what it looks like is an amazing long list of 100 companies in gene and cell therapy, for example, shortlisted to 20 and then razor sharp shortlisted to three or four with a compelling uh, deck of information. And the way that we work it, and I know from my background in UK trade and investment, is investment propositions are often the most compelling when you have it in three parts. So the first part is... What is it about your region that's particularly exciting? So I have that as a standard deck, and we use the university's world-class data tools to make sure that the data is rich and accurate and robust. So I have a a front piece for every proposition. The second part is X company. What do, what what do we know? What have the researchers found out that's in the public domain about that company? They're in gene and cell therapy, but doing what? You know, what does their pipeline look like? What does their cash flow look like who's investing in them and then we feed that back to the company to say you know have we got that all right and then the third part which is the most important part for the company is okay given all of that this is where Cambridge can make a difference to you this is the safe place to do risky things because of these research institutes because of these amazing global companies that are in your space because of the talent that we've got here whatever it might be so you've got a deck which is a really good starting point for that conversation
0: you talked about, um, and I'm going to rephrase the question. I've got written down because, I, 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 because based on what you said about uh, the Department for International Trade and how the leads uh, come down. I mean, the, the Cornwall Council described um, DIT as, as slight criticism, but a, a one size fits all policy. Now, is that a fair assessment from Cambridge, just Cambridge Ann's point of view? And how can we either bolster or improve or what would improve that that going forward if, if improvements are required
2: Yeah. so I know the caveat is I left government service in 2017. Uh, sorry in, in uh, no in two thousand and nine when i left when I left uh, to join one nucleus uh, so my knowledge of the uh, in-depth strategic intent of DIT. DIT didn't even exist no, didn't. when I left, of course. I th- the first thing to say is I think it's fantastic that there is a government department that yes, doesn't have parents. You know, yeah. I think it's, to have its own minister, to have its own place at the cabinet, I think is really important for the, for the UK economy. In terms of a one-size-fits-all, this is my personal view. It's not. It's not the really view particularly of Cambridge, and I, I, I don't know whether it would be or not. But I would say that. National government, so DIT, will always have a UK-first approach. Of course. That, that's, that's, you know. Of course, yeah, of <laughs> course they would. That's how yeah. and what it is. Um, but what I would suggest its role is, when we're looking at inward investment, is to make sure that when they have a very large company that's knocking on the door of number 10, which will, of course, come to DIT, that they do really strong due diligence on which cities or which regions of the UK might be appropriate to put together propositions. And that does happen. That, yeah. d- that does happen. Um, I would. I, I. I am. I do have. I am critical, with a small C though of of, of some DIT activity, just to be a bit controversial. <laughs> Ooh, good. 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 Yeah. And so. So I get that. You know. So, so a large scale opportunity will come into national government, and the dark art happens. And I. You know. There's. There's a whole set of criteria. Yes. About how cities are selected to pitch for.
0: Let's not lift for that particular rock. Let's not exactly. Yes. Let's
2: not. And I genuinely don't know. My role. With national government was trade, not investment, so I genuinely don 't know how my investment what my investment colleague's methodology was um, I assume it's very robust, but Cambridge does get asked through the mayoral combined authority fairly often to 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 put pitches together and, and I help with that my my criticism is that the, the way that um, government the way the Department for international trade is set up it Th- that system inherently creates competition yeah. amongst regions, which I do not think is healthy. No, I agree. Now, that's a very lofty and grand thing to say when you're not having to try and influence uh, policy, but it is still an issue. So, so one of the things that I'm really pleased about and keen on, for, for, for example, with the Oxcam Arc, and that construct that we have of the ox Arc, which is looking like it's going to be really positive now, um, not just for the region, but certainly for the for the UK economy. And, and Michael Gove has, has come back and said, you know, it, it has its place now, as far as I understand it. It's, we've got you know we've got the last bit, the Bedford to Cambridge part of East-West Rail is definitely happening now. So the mood music is all a, a lot more positive than it has been yeah. in the last twelve months, I would say, about the Ox-Cam Arc. But one of the things I'm really hoping for. With the Oxcomark, is that if there should be some sort of overarching inward investment service for the whole of that artificially constructed geography, yes. <laughs> um, then I think that could be a brilliant opportunity for national government to come to us together and say, right, for X company that's in Singapore or Y company that's in the West Coast US, looking to set up its European headquarters, Oxcomark, come back to us with your proposition, rather than Cambridge and Oxford mm-hmm. and. Luton and Milton Keynes come back with your propositions because I think that's so much more helpful for the company and ultimately it's so much more helpful for the UK because you know as many of your listeners will know Cambridge gives back it's one of only 13 cities that gives back to the UK economy annually it's about 1.3 billion net per annum Mm. and I'm sure Oxford isn't you know it may be the same or it may be more so actually if you harness all of that with a joined up story across the arc, I can see how that could be a brilliant opportunity. So I'm I'm feeding that back in quite heavily to, to to Oxcam arc senior officials and others. And it's being, it's being really well received.
0: I think you've got to look at that. I mean, one of the, uh, as an opportunity, you've got to look at that as an opportunity. And one of the earliest, uh, George Freeman was the third interview I did. And the question I asked to him then was, you know, do, do, yeah. there's a certain amount in this podcast of asking people to agree you know isn't, isn't, isn't the sunshine isn't the sunshine wonderful but um, <laughs> there, it's like it's not a zero-sum game is it because you know there's, there, there's a part where you, I can imagine and I'm sorry if I'm doing anyone a disservice I apologise that there are those to our east and, and northeast who may think that oh Oxcam is, is is where's that where, where's our place in that well make a place be there, you know, be part of the, make yourself part of the conversation. Uh, I mean, I'm not a foot in the door. I wouldn't even class myself as a journalist. I'm not a foot in the door kind at all. And that's why I do this, because I like talking with nice people about agreeing with me and saying, isn't, isn't everything wonderful? Because it is. Um, but to, to take your point a bit further, and one of the things I looked at was, uh, and you talk about the Cam arc, similarity of place and it's London and, and Oxford. And Cambridge versus geography obviously this is part of the East of England and we're very extremely proud that it is. How does one strike a balance or does one have to sort of follow the similarity of place before geography or is it vice versa? I invite you to reflect on that.
2: Oh goodness I think I mean my headline there is that if you purely with an inward investment lens people and decision makers in companies will go where the majority of their boxes are ticked. It doesn't necessarily matter about geography. So I was talking yeah. with a big pharma company not that long ago. That's not it's not, it's, it's not in the east of England, but it's not that far away that said to me, actually, Harriet, um, it's not about whether we might come and have a footprint in Cambridge versus a footprint in Scunthorpe or a footprint in Leeds or a footprint in Manchester. It's about where we know... To my point earlier, our shoulders can come down. So I think in terms of where organisations choose to be, it's got to be somewhere that is deeply collaborative, of course. It has to be somewhere where there's a critical mass already of talent and expertise that can be drawn on. But geographically, you know, companies aren't going to necessarily think, oh, I need to be in the arc because it's close to where I live. If, if Bristol was a better place, they'd be looking there. Mm. Do you see what I mean? I don't, yes, I answer, absolutely. I don't know if I've no. answered the question, but 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 I guess the point with the Oxcam Arc, I mean, it's it's, it's an artificial construct, isn't it? You know, somebody has drawn a, a yeah. line around a geography. So to your point, absolutely, it should be porous. Oh my goodness, it should be porous. And to your point earlier about, you know, Cambridge to Norwich, that should be porous too. I talk um, fairly regularly with Joe Churchill, who's my MP, yes. MP, MP yes. Barry St Edmunds passionate about growth, good growth. And we talk quite we've talked quite a lot in the past about, you know, the expansion of, of Cambridge. And if you look at places like Boston, you know, the, the the life sciences cluster in the East Coast US is not just about Boston anymore. Mm. And it shouldn't be about no. Boston, you know, it's it's about it's about the, the, the onion layers of what's important for companies and what's important for actually locally for people as much as it is nationally and internationally. And I think one of the things that, that we could probably still do a better job of as a high-growth city or even as a high-growth cluster that happens to be in the east of England, I think there's still a job to be done to showcase to the general public the, the brilliance of science and some of our amazing institutions. And not, I'm not talking about universities, but science parks and incubators. You know, the more porous they can be, the better, and so when I'm talking at the moment with some of the large scale infrastructure that's going into Cambridge, I mean, by the end of this year, we'll have some, well, we have already got a lot of world-class uh, sites and science parks and incubators, but there'll be even more by the end of this year with amazing design coming through from the States in particular.
1: Mm.
2: But but all of the developers I'm talking to at the moment, and it's genuinely all of the developers I'm talking to at the moment who are working on key sites around, Greater Cambridge, all have really strong ethical values in terms of what they want to be, and the the issues they want to help. Which they do. None of them see themselves. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking a cut here. But none of them see themselves as putting up bricks and mortar. It's all about how can we engage with the local community? How can we showcase that we're making a difference? How can we involve schools? How can we inspire young people? All of them. All mm-hmm. of them are saying the same thing, which I think is really exciting. And if you look a bit further up the. Up the road, of course. So you mentioned John Innes and Norwich Research Park, and the amazing Ross Bird is a really good friend of mine who you I, interviewed. I, you know, she, I she she will have that. Time she will us. have that coursing through her veins.
0: She does. She does. It's, yeah. It's, it's you know, if we could, Ross is one of those people. If we could hook her up uh, to the mains and just she needs power be, cities She needs off, to be cloned. And, she needs to be cloned. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, and there are, I'm sure, there are people in Cambridge, Norwich who could who could work, start working on that for us. But. Um, One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because it's kind of foxed me a bit, I'm never quite sure whether, in my approaches to the east of England, whether it is better to focus on Cambridge being Cambridge, Norwich being Norwich, Ipswich being Ipswich, Colchester being etc, places being themselves, and not trying to pull them all together into some kind of amorphous, as you say, uh, this isn't Yorkshire, so there's no kind of overarching... Identity, I don't think. Uh, I may be wrong. I know Daniel Zeichner kind of disagreed with that. Or to do exactly that, to sort of say, hey, we're all the East of England. Let's all be the East of England. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm just, I'm, it's not one of my questions. I'm just keen to hear what you think. I think it depends on why we're having the
2: conversation. I think it depends on who your audience is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we've got, let's, let's pick a, a company out of the air, uh, Medtronic, huge American life sciences and healthcare company if they're seeking to come to um, the east of England I think it's crucially important that the expertise of Cambridge the expertise of Norwich the close proximity to London the fact we've got GSK not that far away on 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 the edge of of our region those things are all going to be really 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 important and it's really important to highlight those particular geographies those 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 mm. microcosms, if you like. Whereas if you're talking to um, national government, perhaps, <laughs> just yes. as a suggestion. Um, I did some work with the East of England Local Government Association the year before last, um, because they were looking at how the East of England was presented at big international conferences. And the example that they had was MIPIN, the big...
0: Yes, I've you, done MIPPIN, yeah. Mm.
2: Have you? And, and, Not for the and sh- survived. Just,
0: just, okay. I just did it... Um, this was way back when I'd, I was... Richard Bacon, who I used to, for whom I used to work, uh, he, uh, he let me come up this thing called How Should Norfolk Grow? And he sort of fronted it and he let me run with it. And possibly that was the source of why I <laughs> drove me completely off the deep end. But uh, it was, the, the whole point of that was to, was to park the question of why and focus on the how. And so we were invited out to mip him by uh, Jackie Sadek, right. if you know, uh, she, big name in regeneration. And um, yeah, it was it was crazy just going around and
2: I've heard, I've never been, but I've heard.
0: And, and what was funny, what was interesting there was yes, I'd visited the Norfolk and the Norwich stands, which but it was the the fact that Suffolk had kinda of coalesced around Ipswich as as their, their card. And they had everyone there. They had Deborah Cadman who was yes, running the the, the 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 um Chief the county it? council at the time. Oh, okay. And it had, it was badged up with the local MPs, who was Ben Gummer at the time. And I was completely blown away by what they were doing. I thought I was, that was brilliant. It was a masterstroke. And so, yes, sorry. <laughs> yes, I have been to Mipim is the short answer. Yes. So,
2: so, so, so the East of England presence at Mipim was the catalyst for ILGA thinking, mm-hmm. East of England Local Government Association, saying, saying to a whole range of people across the whole of the uh, the whole of whole East Anglia or East of England, however, however we define it, how do we present a cohesive and joined up story to an international audience of that magnitude when there's so much noise going on around the place and hundreds of thousands of visitors. And people that had been to Mippin had said that there was a great showing from Suffolk and from Norfolk, but, but where the hell was Cambridge? So, so actually, how collectively, if we're going to be getting to the masses and need to get messaging out to the masses, how do we showcase what the East of England is? And I know Daniel feels passionately that the East of England should have a you know, a, a strong voice uh, into into Whitehall as 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 a as a unit of its own, and that is really important. And there are various all party parliamentary groups that Cambridge Ahead is involved in in that in that way. Yeah. But but ILGA, it was a really interesting piece of work that we did because uh, Cheryl Davenport, who was running it. When I started off on the working group, which was all about messaging for MIPIM, and we would have then rolled it out to BIO, which is the Global Life Sciences Conference, and perhaps to Medica, which is the Global Healthcare Conference and others. It became clear very quickly, that's my point about audiences, it became clear very quickly that all of us on the working group um, fell into one of two camps. So I and others were interested in what the messaging was for an international investor. Whereas a lot of other people on the call were interested in what the messaging would be into national government for continued investment support yeah, yeah. in R&D or mm. skill space or whatever it might be. And so relatively quickly, we, we split them because the messages are not the same for those two audiences. No. And there'll be a lot of underpinning data that is, but yeah, the messaging yeah. is, is, is very different. And so Jane and Dan at Cambridge Ahead were in the one relating to clear and concise messaging into local and national government because that's predominantly a huge part of what they do, you know, uh, evidence-based recommendations. And I, although I chair Cambridge I had my Cambridge AND hat on and was was far more involved in the messaging for international inward investors to the whole of the east of England. And it was interesting as we were going through the process of that razor-sharp focus on inward investment for the whole of the, the east of England, where, you know, Cambridge is one part of that. So if you look at Porter Felix Stowe, you know, we all know yeah, the yeah. amazing that you know that we've already talked about John Innes, but you know, the Quadrum Institute. If you look across the whole of the patch, so many compelling things, and I hate the word unique. I really cringe at the word yes. unique because oh. the, how on earth do you define it? What is it? And is anyone genuinely unique? Well, every human being is, but is any <laughs> is any one organization unique or one ecosystem unique? It, it's
0: very overused, isn't it? It's
2: very overused. And so, but but what we determined. When we were looking at this and some really great people were on this working group what we determined was that actually if you put together the strength of it wasn't i don't think it was a freeport then but the strength of that logistics excellence that we've got for the for for the far east and the the shores and the wind innovation that's taking place couple that with the amazing of food and gut and health and microbiome science i'm I'm praising for effect that's Mm. going on in in norwich world-class beyond doubt then you bring in Cambridge as well with its life sciences and its tech. Actually, if, if that's the lens you're looking through, that, that could be classed as unique with all those moving parts. Mm. So, so I think, sorry to be obtuse, but I think, I think the question about what should it be depends on the audience. And it's not about making it up to fit. It's just about, making, just sure, it's yeah. just about making sure that you're getting the right messaging and accurate messaging in to the right people with the quest, addressing the questions they want to have answered.
0: What's the importance of, you've, you've alluded to the importance of universities, and I don't want to sort of keep, keep you much longer, but you, you've alluded to the importance of, of universities. What a collection you, from which you, you can choose. I mean, you, Cambridge, all the colleges here, you've got Anglia Ruskin, the UEA, University of East Anglia, Norwich University of the Arts, University of Essex, and now the University of Suffolk as well. What a package!
2: It's an amazing package, and I'm yeah. I, my, I mean I've lived in Suffolk for the last fifteen years, so I've seen the University of Suffolk, you know, reach its current status, which is really exciting. A beautiful waterfront to Ipswich, as yes. as you well know. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, a number of companies that have been here for a very long time in Cambridge, would I've heard them say behind closed doors, um, actually, uh, the reason they came here wasn't specifically because of the university, uh, but for those, you know nine tenths of others say, of course, it's because of the university. So you cannot, one cannot underestimate the importance of the University of Cambridge. But for, 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 for greater Cambridge, the University of Cambridge and Anglia Ruskin University, you can't underestimate the importance of that presence and, and that long term presence, you know, that 800 years yes. of history um, is absolutely fundamental and crucial to, to, to the Cambridge phenomenon as, as was and to and to now. And I'm heavily involved with the university, so I don't want to pretend that I'm a spokesperson for it. But one of the things that I admire and am relieved about at the current time is that the the leadership of the University of Cambridge really understands business and can talk in a very lay way about cutting through layers because, you know, universities are bureaucratic Mm -hmm. No. I'm not. I don't want to strap strapline saying Harriet Pierce says universities are a bureaucratic monster. I don't, I don't do those kind of <laughs> lines.
0: It, um, it's not, and I didn't go to university, so I, I, I don't
2: pretend to understand you're, you're, it. You
0: If you did say that, and you haven't said that, but if you did, you wouldn't be the first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it's. But there is a perception of you know th- th- those huge institutions are bound to have levels of bureaucracy. Mm. But but genuinely, the people that I work with, um, not least Andy, who I've mentioned, who's you know he's my chair at Cambridge, and but. Provost Chancellor, Senior Provost Chancellor for, for Enterprise and Business Relations, but his peers in R&D and in other parts of the university, they, they have this deep understanding of business and they can talk about it in a non-academic way. And I, th- I think I haven't seen that um, over the last 15 years that I've been in Cambridge. I've only seen it in the last four or five years in a really compelling and exciting way.
0: Yeah. STEM. Is, is incredibly important, and this is incredibly rich region for STEM. We have the Youth STEM Award uh, based at the Norwich Research Park, which is global, but it's sort of offering those opportunities. And uh, I'm using STEM with its extra M for medicine at this point. How do we create, and I, I use the word intentionally, kind of a quilt of STEM opportunity, across our region and you can't see this listeners but i'm expanding my arms to indicate a large quilt of stem opportunity
2: i like the idea of quilts so i love textiles i'm a
0: massive ah there you go i'm a
2: massive antique textile collector for no reason whatsoever other than just to look at it
0: i'd like to say that that was part of my research but that's <laughs> a genuine surprise no
2: i've never divulged that before but ah, you see. yeah yeah Scoops, I'm absolute go, go. absolute sucker for yeah for, for old material <laughs> we, we, we won't dig, dig into that too far um yeah, so STEM, not even STEM, the, the importance of inspiring young people to appreciate and understand that STEM subjects are an opportunity for them. is, is a, It's a national issue, obviously, but there's huge opportunity in this region. And I know you've talked about George Freeman earlier, know he's absolutely passionate about this. And I've been involved in working groups with him and others on how to incentivize and inspire young people. And at Cambridge Ahead, we have it as a big part of our work. Yeah. But there are some amazing organizations in Cambridge working on this, like Form the Future with Anne Bailey and and others. Um, for a brief period as, as an interim role, just for six months, uh, back in 2017-18, I worked with the Merrill Combined Authority and set up the Local Enterprise Partnership and the business board for them. Um, under the previous mayor. And part of my role as the director of business and skills was to oversee the work relating to Peterborough University. And that was really thrilling, to be honest, because the University of Cambridge is phenomenal and a a world phenomenon. Anglia Ruskin absolutely has its place, really deep and meaningful um, academic, but obviously commercial understanding but actually, to have a university in the region—and forgive me, because I don't know the Norwich um, and, no, no, and, and University fine. of Suffolk yeah. universities as well as I do the others—but to have a brand new university with its, what seems to me to be its entire focus on attracting in students in STEM in a very practical way, with some mm. amazing organisations attached. Obviously, Aiu is attached to it, and, and I know Marshall and others have been heavily involved. But to have that in our garden how amazing to inspire homegrown talent. But one of the things that, that I found out from, from George years ago, he'd done a whole load of analysis with, uh, with, a, with a working group about what, at what age children start to think about how they're influenced and start to think about what they might want to do with their jobs and careers. And there'd been this fallacy that it's about 11 or 12, and then actually <laughs> it was six and seven. Yeah. So I made damn sure with my little nephew that when he was six and seven, I would just... <laughs> overloading with information yes. about STEM <laughs> but, but we, we're really lucky in Cambridge to have organisations as well like the Cambridge Science Centre that does yes, such a huge course. huge amount of outreach and I work closely with them on, on on a range of on a range of things and they're really exciting and some of the big name companies are, are supportive of, of the work that they're doing but that point about being about institutions and organisations being porous they, they're all over that in a really nice way. And they've just got this amazing new CEO, John Ball, who you may not have met yet, who's actually relocated from the Middle East to come and work on the Cambridge Science Centre. So we're attracting people, you know, these global rock stars are coming in.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, it's funny enough, I, I approached via LinkedIn the, uh, the, the, the physics podcast at the Cavendish Lab and said, do you know what? It might be a bit meta. But I'd love to get your podcast on my podcast and and, and let's have a chat and they've sort of said oh let's connect so they may, may, may be exchanging emails to say no, yeah, thank you but I, I, I just think that would be a great way to sort of profile people doing doing amazing work um, I suppose rounding up the interview now um, what is it about Cambridge and what what, what do you kind of want to what Cambridge and to specialise in is it all kind of in investment or is there is it particularly mergers or new, completely new projects starting out of the ground from scratch?
2: Oh, that's a really simple. That's the easiest question of the lot, Mike. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, no, it's all about, it's ultimately, it's all about companies from around the world, the best in class having a physical presence here. So so, so building uh, or um, either, either creating their own bespoke building in Greater Cambridge or uh, acquiring or renting property and having feet on the ground. So job and wealth creation for the region with national benefit and international benefit in terms of what they're working on. So it's not about attracting investment from other parts of the country. I do nothing relating mm-hmm. to you know, trying to crowbar companies yes. from Manchester to come in. And it's it's actually not either about working particularly on ensuring that companies stay here that are already here, that retention piece. That's actually the role of the combined authority and growth works. do that. That said, of course, you know, I'm very bad at saying no to things. So I get involved in all sorts yes, of things yes. That, that, yes. that are on the periphery of hand-holding large-scale companies and growing uni- companies that are going to be unicorns in the future to come and have a physical presence here. My, 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 my remit is, is, is somewhat uh, like a big pair of baggy trousers. It expands and contracts. But ultimately, it's all about a large-scale company coming and physically being here, but but not just being here uh, for a period of time. The, the process that I go through when I'm talking with a company is to, where it's possible, seek to understand that they're here for a really long-term, sustainable investment, you know, across a, you know, 10, 15, 20 year period. I remember Pascal Soria when he was asked on national television how long he planned to stay in Cambridge. <laughs> I remember, oh, This would be an interesting answer. Yeah. Because they've invested such a huge amount, of course. And, uh, and he said, uh, I can't, His beautiful French accent. He said, I can't say forever, but 20 years is forever in pharma and I will give you at least 20 years. So, you know, it's, yeah. that's, it's, this isn't about short-term investment for a quick gain for the company or a quick gain for Cambridge. This is all about which are the right companies to proactively target in the nicest possible way and proactively focus on that could be beneficial to the subject's that that Cambridge happens to be brilliant at working on and we need more brilliance to come in from around the world so we can collectively make a difference to the world
0: is there anything about Cambridge and I've missed and I haven't talked about that you want to talk about or have I we pretty much no I think
2: I think I think we're good
0: right well in that case Harriet Fear thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and I I usually people sometimes ask when I finish was that all right but I'm gonna have to ask you that (laughs) was that all right
2: oh my goodness no thank you very much it's
0: a pleasure thank you so much cheers I don't know if you could tell, but I rather enjoyed my chat with Harriet. I'm hugely grateful to her for her time and to Deloitte for hosting us at their offices on Station Square in Cambridge. And now... This region is full to the brim and a loving spoonful more of places to go with that certain special someone in your life and feel the sparkle of romance. Are you loving them in Lavin'em? Well, we'll always have mellis in this week's... Crowd Sorcery Yes, Crowd Sorcery. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. I don't know what you've lost, your car keys, possibly. But love is a many splendid and mysterious thing. And determined to keep the mystery alive is one Tim Robinson, chief operating officer at Tech East. Where's his romantic place, eh? That'd be telling, says Tim. Very well, keep your secrets. It befits a man who is the very epitome of cool to cultivate an enigmatic air. Sadly, it looks like we're not going to get to the bottom of this particular mystery, which gets me wondering, dear listeners, given this air of mystique, I think there's a fairly solid chance that Tim Robinson and the Cabri's Milk tray Man are one and the same. And all because the lady loves tech east. And who doesn't? Meanwhile, international romantic Tom Abbott of Greeneasy is making good use of the different cultural calendars across the globe. Says Tom, I proposed to my second wife in the dunes at the Coke Estate... But Valentine's Day is celebrated on the 12th of June in Brazil, Dia dos Namorados. So my first and potentially third wife get two St. Valentine's Days. Also tied to the 13th of June being St. Anthony's Day as he blessed young couples with prosperity in marriage. I think watching the sun set in Hunstanton or close by is a place where I would like to go in the future with my girlfriend, says Tom. Thank you very much, Tom. I hope you both enjoy that special sunset very soon. Meanwhile, Sue Simmons, Innovation Showcase Manager at Adastral Park, says, "I'm a simple girl, and love a beautiful view, cold bright day, or preferably sunset, and maybe seeing the blood moon rise over the sea at Old Felixstowe is one of my favourites. Just another renting one of the gorgeous Hipperson's Boatyard floating boathouses at Beckles is amazing." Utterly relaxing and fantastically joyful place, full of nature and beautiful places to see by land or boat. Thank you, Sue. Suffolk is truly blessed with a huge number of romantic spots. And that's it for another week, my crowd sorcerers. Two, in fact, because Eastern Promise is taking a short break. Keep a lookout, though, for the next challenge coming soon, the most mindful place in the east of England. I shall return, like MacArthur, in two weeks' time, when I shall be speaking to the East of England Local Government Association about levelling up, sustainable growth, and how this region makes its pitch to central government. I shall also be sharing some really exciting stuff, recorded on location, outside our region. My huge thanks to this week's guest, Harriet Fear MBE of Cambridge And, to all my sorcerers and to Engineer 49, A man whose whistle can tune a radio, remove limescale and open a car's central locking. Thank you most of all to you. You could be anywhere doing anything and instead you're here with me, learning about the UK's most exciting and potential packed region. You'll be hearing from me. But until then, bye for now.